Well, hello, it's Jim Conley, your host of this episode of the Science Lab Radio Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the podcast, which is dedicated to all things in the science laboratory. And I'm so excited to feature on our show for the first time, my good friend, Ian Townsend. Welcome to the show, Ian. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jim. Well, Ian, I thought we'd start off real quick by having you share with the audience what your role is here at McGraw-Hill. So I am the, the portfolio manager for biology and genetics. And really what that means is that uh, I spend a lot of time talking to instructors uh, and learning exactly what they need to support their courses and what their students need to, to get as much out of both of our content and our technology products uh, as much as possible. So Ian, uh, one thing I'm excited about in terms of a question for you is when you think about the discipline of biology, what excites you the most about it? I think the thing that excites me the most about biology is the opportunity to impact students who are going to go into like a, a diverse set of different, you know, fields after they take the biology course. So, so I cover majors biology. So students who are going to be researchers or, you know, trying to go into the pre-med direction. Uh, it's cool to to feel like you have a hand in getting them excited about science and kind of maybe stoking that fire so that they go on to do really cool and complicated things in their further courses. And then uh, I also get to work with the non-majors uh, track where students, you know, might be a little bit more science averse and you have the opportunity to stoke that initial flame and see if, you know, uh, you can help them better understand science throughout the rest of their lives. So, so it's a couple of different directions and they're both really exciting to me. What's fascinating about that, I think of the dichotomy, but the, the song remains the same. It's still that love of biology that's right at the core of everything that you do. Can you share with the audience, when is the first time that you remember falling in, in love with science in general or with biology or, or both maybe? Well, absolutely. So I remember... Um... When I was in like the fourth or fifth grade, I went to this week long uh, physics summer camp, like when your parents are looking for things to just keep you busy over the summer. Uh, and we built these little, um, they were kind of like measurement devices for G-forces and things like that and went to an amusement park. Uh, and it was so cool at the end of the day, looking at like the recordings we took on all of the different rides and stuff like that. Uh, I was just like, man, it's so cool to to have been able to measure that, uh, that really fun experience and now have like data related to it. Uh, and since then, I mean, my background's in chemistry. So, so I've kind of explored all across like the, the science disciplines, you know, the, the different cool things that you get when you observe things and kind of uh, use that to make inferences and, and go down that route. So uh, something I find really cool. Yeah, I think that's awesome, too. I never heard that story from you before, but I know, you know, chemistry's in your background. Um, with chemistry in particular, it's kind of an ad hoc or an ad lib question. What do you think is the magic behind chemistry? Uh, the magic behind chemistry, uh, it's, it's cool just to imagine that, you know, there's, there's the stuff that we can observe in the world around us, uh, which is, you know, cool and interesting, but chemistry really takes it like one level smaller and on a really small scale, there are so many things going on at any moment that you can't observe without, you know, different tools. Um, and it's really cool to be able to get down to that very small level and, and understand at like a level that humans at one point couldn't even imagine like what's really going on with matter and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think chemistry, you know, for me, just my background, I didn't really get into it much until like college 
you know, I had to for high school, but I, I don't think I really understood it to the level that I needed to. But now as a, an industry person, holy smokes, like there's so much with chemistry and literally chemistries around us everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the cool things. So a quick shout out to our friends on the McGraw-Hill chemistry team. So Michelle Hans, Cassie, you know, give you a quick uh, high sign there for the chemistry piece. Um, Ian, going back to virtual labs, by the way, virtual labs is available for the chemistry products as well, but we'll, we maybe we'll talk about that in another episode. But as it relates to this show, I thought we would talk a little bit about some of the simulations that are coming out new and you know your perspective in that regard. But before we do, I know that virtual labs, the story of it has a unique angle as it relates to biology. So for both non-majors and the majors, um, how has like the pandemic and just some of the other situational things out in the world today, how have they shaped the digital offer that you have with virtual labs? Well, the interesting thing is that uh, virtual labs you know, even though it was a big part of a lot of people's plans and classrooms before the pandemic, uh, it felt like it was a little bit more niche compared to how people are thinking about it, you know, coming out of the pandemic. Uh, you know, so many people during this time, uh, well, it's been really challenging to reach students in a virtual format, uh, I think have found so many new and interesting tools that they can bring into the classroom to engage students. And so whether you're continuing to do a fully online lab for some students, uh, whether you're trying to bring some active learning activities into the classroom or whether you're really just trying to get your students more prepared for the in-person lab experience, there are a lot of ways that now coming out of this, people can kind of use these virtual tools, you know, be it virtual labs or some of the pre or post lab questions that go along with the virtual labs to, to put together uh, a, a virtual support system for their lab that really fits what they're trying to do with their students. So, so that's what's changed the most, I think, is that there are some new and interesting ways that instructors have brought back to us as far as like, hey, here's how I'm going to try to use these labs. You know, is anyone else doing it like this? Uh, and, and it's really opening our minds, I think, to, to how powerful these tools can be and how differently they can be used. Yeah, that's the one thing I've observed, too, is you and your team have been so responsive to really different ways to use virtual labs. And then I just think back to, you know, the campaign that we ran last year for virtual labs. Uh, it received a Cody Award for the best student experience in response to the pandemic. So I think that really speaks volumes, not only to everything that we did here at McGraw-Hill on the sales side, marketing side that I'm involved in, but then the product development side, I know you guys really worked so hard to make that available. So congratulations on the Cody Award. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a ton of work, but it's been so rewarding uh, and it's felt really good to be able to support people during this time. Well, on that note, so one of the main reasons for having this show today, other than just sharing your expertise with the world is we have five brand new simulations that are just released as of Wednesday of this week. So they're available today. Um, so can you share like maybe your perspective on, you know, what those labs are, maybe talk through what ones are published and then just give them a little glimpse to what's happening this fall, what might be upcoming. Absolutely. So we are really excited now that we've got our uh, first couple of waves of virtual labs out to now be able to really dig in and provide uh, some coverage in areas where we didn't have coverage before. 
Uh, so we have three dissections coming out, uh, earthworm, mussel, and perch. So uh, a little variety between vertebrates and invertebrates to help you, you know, get that kind of coverage into your course. Uh, then we also have a new plants lab. So transpiration, uh, a key thing to understand as far as plant physiology goes. Uh, and so we have a new really cool uh, plant physiology, you know, transpiration lab. The, the developers were excited to put that one together because it really uh, incorporates a lot of different experimental things that might be more difficult to do in an in-person lab uh, and really cleans it up in a nice way for the virtual environment. Uh, and then finally, we have a really cool population biology uh, lab based on growth and competition. Uh, and that's another fun one where you can really speed things up in the virtual environment and show students uh, some cool competition, what happens when two species are competing for the same resources in the same environment. Uh, so that's a nice one that uh, will give us a little bit more ecology coverage. Uh, and then in addition, we have more labs coming out for dissection and plants uh, throughout the rest of the fall. Uh, and so we're, you know, working on those as fast as we can uh, and really hoping to get some students in and playing around with those in the fall uh, to, to really, you know, round out that coverage uh, and we'll continue to develop even more labs in spring uh, in those same areas. Once again, we're really focusing on plants, animals and ecology to fill in those gaps going forward. Well, fantastic job, Ian. So for the audience, Ian actually did a video, actually created a video for the earthworm dissection. It's fantastic. It's three and a half minutes long, but it does such a nice job, Ian, of explaining the major elements of what we're publishing as it relates to the dissection of the earthworm. But I could see where that had to have a ton of value for any biology course. You know, I even think back to when I dissected the earthworm as a sophomore in high school, it'd be amazing to have that before you actually went into the lab as a pre-lab. It'd be so cool. Absolutely. Yeah. That's we, we, in talking to instructors about these dissections, uh, there are a number of reasons why they're really excited about them. One being exactly that it's great preparation for working with an actual sample. Uh, another being that in some cases there aren't that many samples to go around between students. So you end up with like a, a team situation and it would be really nice to have both students, you know, get the opportunity to, uh, to go through the type of activity on themselves. Uh, and then the other one would be just the, the ability to assign these as kind of like a follow-up to doing the, the dissection lab to really make sure that you did understand what you did in there. Boy, that's a great point, Ian. So I was just thinking about it as a pre-lab. I also thought about, you know, it's a way to minimize waste, but you just brought up a really good point that you could use this as a really nice post-lab to really reinforce a lot of the major concepts you know, you're trying to teach them in the lab, right? Absolutely. Yeah be a lot of fun. Well, one thing that I've been curious about, um, and I think our audience would as well, is when you, as McGraw-Hill, when you decide to evaluate which labs to publish in the future, how do you do that? So really, that's the the fun part about my job. You know, like I said, I, I spend a lot of time putting together surveys for instructors uh, and also doing one-on-one -on -one interviews to get a really strong idea of what we could provide that would be beneficial to students. Uh, and so we had over you know, the last year and a half, two years, a ton of usage on these virtual labs and a ton of opportunity to ask instructors, what else could we provide that would be really helpful? And the answer came out very clearly that the top thing on the list was more coverage of dissections. Uh, and so from there, it was an, a, a kind of a game of, well, if that's the case, which organisms do we need to have in our quiver in order to, to get your students the experience they need? Uh, so that's how that information came together. 
in addition, plants and ecology also came uh, about tied for second as far as where we needed more coverage. Uh, so really it's the, the fun game of, you know, start out with a broad level, where are the gaps, and then get down to exactly what you could add that would fill those gaps the best for the most instructors. Uh, and then from there, as we start developing, we build out a storyboard for these new simulations. Uh, and then, you know, we work with instructors to give feedback in a kind of a loop with every version to say, you know, how could we improve this? How could we make this easier for students to use? And also really make sure that it gets across the learning objectives that you want to get across in this uh, activity uh, to make it as strong of a simulation as possible. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I'm sure there are many complexities in everything you just mentioned. Oh, absolutely. And then, you know, complexities come in on our end on, you know, the people that we work with to develop these, you know, who has bandwidth to help us develop the storyboards, uh, programming, there are always challenges that we have to overcome where it's like, how do we take this activity that you would do in the lab and make it something that's virtual friendly, and also accessible, you know, because there are other requirements that we have to be thinking about as students work through these, but, but it's a fun challenge. And when, uh, when all of the plates come crashing down at once at the exact same time, and the lab's ready to go, uh, it's a, it's a really rewarding feeling. Well, Ian, some other time we could probably talk through the accessibility, but I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one of the main things that we preserved from the very beginning is when we re-engineered these labs, accessibility is always there. And I would imagine when you look at the earthworm and all the five dissections that you have, the accessibility features were really uh, engineered right at the ground level, right? Absolutely. Things like alt text and the other requirements that we have to make sure that the, the keyboard navigation and things like that work, you know, it was thought about from step one. Uh, and that's so much better of a way to do it than kind of retrofitting the accessibility portion and later on. So uh, it's, it's one of the luxuries that you have uh, when developing completely new content is just the ability to think about that from day one. And to share with the audience, I know it takes a lot more time on the front end, but you do then later in the end product, I think it, it definitely shows when you really factor in accessibility. And I remember back when we were doing version one of the current product, uh, how difficult that was just to consider all the many facets that you need to account for when it relates to accessibility. So kudos to you and your team, Ian, for really keeping that front and center, especially with these new you know, five simulations that we have. Absolutely. Yeah, it's totally front and center. That's the, the best way to put it, Jim. Okay, so in your opinion, this is going to be a wild question to transition a little bit from what's published to now. When you think of a majors biology course, what is the best way to use virtual labs in your opinion? In, in my opinion, and this, this might seem like a little bit of a cop-out, Jim, but the, the best way to use virtual labs in your majors biology course is going to be whatever fits in with all of those other pieces that you as the instructor are bringing to the table. Um, and in some cases, you know, that's going to be a, a situation where you might have less time in lab due to distancing or things like that this fall than you've had in the past. So uh, you can kind of pick and choose some labs to do more virtually versus the ones that you really want to do in person. Uh, you can and choose between the pre and post lab questions that we have to find ways to support both virtual or in-person labs uh, as far as the learning objectives that you're trying to get across. You could use the simulations to prepare students for what they're going to do in lab um, if you do have a significant in-lab portion, uh, or you could even take some of these, uh, these simulations and bring them into the lecture component, of course, 
to strengthen that bridge between what students are learning in lecture and lab. Uh, and so we have some recommendations depending on which of those goals that you're trying to accomplish. Uh, don't hesitate to ask us. Uh, we'll happily let you know what other people are doing uh, or even hook you up with a person who's on the faculty at a different institution trying to accomplish some of the same goals. Um, but but really, you know, the, the number one piece of advice I would give is not to just think of these as if I'm not going to be able to do a lab in person, I'll use this as a substitute because, well, that's a great way to use them. There are so many other ways that you could use that would really uh, open up the, you know, the options and hopefully still help your students in a big way. Ian, that's a fantastic answer. And it's not a cop out. I think it's the right <laughs> answer in terms of there isn't any one best way to do it. However, you know, as an interviewer, you always got to try to be provocative, right? And, and really- no, absolutely. So as an interviewer, we'll go down that road one more time here. If you were to give the audience uh, one or two best practices, and, and it doesn't matter whether it's majors, non-majors, or just for any of these courses, um, if they were going to be using this product in fall or spring, what would be like one or two things that you can think of that you might suggest? One thing that I would suggest is definitely as an instructor, um, it, it really helps to take the time to work through the lab. There are so many features that if you just look at the, the front page, you know, you might not know what your students are interacting with. There are a lot of intermediate questions. Anytime that we can put a pop-up question in uh, after a student completes a step that really requires them to connect up, you know, what did I just do versus uh, an important principle in biology, uh, you know, then if you go through the lab yourself, you'll be able to see all of those questions and know what your students have seen and then incorporate some of those questions into post-lab quizzing or lab exams or things like that. So, so the, the more you take a look at these, the more you're going to know how to make the full lab experience really enriching for your students. Uh, and then the other one would be definitely check out for the labs that do have adaptive pre-lab available or post-lab questions. Um, those are a quick and easy way to build up some structure and framework around the, the simulations themselves and make sure that students are getting as much as possible out of the experience. So, so I would for sure check those out as well. Now, Ian, we may have another show. Hopefully you'll come back to be a guest on the show uh, to talk more detail about the adaptive prelabs. But just real quick, since that's a relatively new area for some people, you may not uh, be familiar with what Ian's talking about. If you were going to you know, explain what that is and maybe under a minute, what, what would you say about the adaptive prelabs? So those pre-labs are really a combination of resources and kind of formative assessment questions that are going to get your students warmed up on some of those key learning objectives that you would want them to know coming into the lab if they were coming into an in-person lab. I remember uh, when I used to teach organic chemistry labs, it frequently felt like, you know, in a three-hour lab, it wasn't until hour two that most students really understood what they were doing in lab. Uh, and probably when you hit that point, you're like, oh man, if I would have known what I was doing earlier, you know, I might've made some different choices uh, and probably would have gotten more out of the experience. So, so that's the goal of the adaptive pre-lab is to, you know, in an efficient way, give students more support on the topics that they don't understand coming into lab. Uh, and then for the things that they already do understand, you know, since it's adaptive, they'll move through that pretty quickly. Uh, and so it's a really efficient way to prep. So just an inside tip for everybody here. We just published literally a day or two ago, a brand new adaptive pre-lab for histology. That's brand new. So uh, if you're in Connect, uh, give that one a, 
a quick look. And then one thing we're going to be doing here consistently, not only on the podcast, but also through our newsletter is notifying everyone when new simulations come available or when the new adaptive pre-labs are there, but just getting into a better flow with everyone, uh, notifying you when those things are available. So you can enter them into your course. Uh, and those are really easy things to do. So thank you for uh, explaining that, Ian. Uh, but I think those are really exciting. Absolutely. Yeah, really exciting. Okay, so last couple of questions, because I know you got to run, you got a lot of lab simulations to work on and many other things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm in the audience and I'm like, these things sound really cool or I've used them and I want to get involved in reviewing or uh, potentially creating content or whatever it might be with virtual labs, you know, how can they do that? Reach out to us because we are always looking for people, especially in some of those areas I just described the you know, plants, animals, and ecology content that we're creating. Uh, We love to have as many eyes on these as possible. Um, And in some cases, uh, we also need people to help us generate the ideas and content to begin with. Uh, It's always helpful to have more people involved. So please reach out to us and let us know. Um, I'm sure that my contact information will be somewhere in the the podcast info. So uh, feel free to cold email me if you hear this. I'm a nice guy and easy to work with, uh, so it'll uh, it'll be great. But but yeah, we would love your help if you're if you're interested in participating. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, we will definitely put Ian's email address in the show notes. But if you know you don't get to that or you forget that piece by this moment, um, what is your email address, Ian? Uh, it is ian.townsend at mheducation.com. Awesome. So yeah, definitely show notes or, um, you know, Ian just mentioned it there, get in touch with Ian. He's an awesome person. One thing that we did gloss over, which I I didn't mean to earlier, but you actually have taught before. Oh yeah. Just, uh, lab courses, uh, in, uh, chemistry. So, so that's my area of empathy with instructors who are trying to teach lab courses is a totally different game from lecture, uh, and presents a totally different set of challenges. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what you get with Ian is uh, he's just such a delightful person. But then now for all of you, he's got the same experience you have in terms of he's taught before and then he's knee deep in a lot of these content creation efforts and just a wonderful person. And I want to thank you today, Ian, for you know giving us your time here on the podcast. I hope that you come back again. Oh, I'll be back, Jim. Don't worry. <laughs> Whether you invite me or not. You're definitely invited. And you've been such a, an exceptional partner for me uh, personally, and then for the rest of my teammates. And you're just an absolute delight to work with. So I just really appreciate you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Jim. And it's really cool uh, what you're doing with this podcast. Yeah, appreciate it. And then to end the podcast today, I, I just hope uh, you guys all have a great day. And then if you get a chance, you know, I want to thank you for sure for listening to this episode and, and some of the other episodes that you may have listened to, or if you haven't, go give them a listen. And then one thing that we ask a lot is if you could share this with a colleague. Uh, So this is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes. We also have it available online. That would really help us out in terms of getting the word out. Also, if you have a show idea or if you want to be on the show, reach out to me. My email address is james.connely at mheducation.com. And then, of course, you know, some of the outlets like iTunes, they have a rating. So if you don't mind, give us a four or five star rating. That would really like make our weekend, definitely, since we'll publish this on a Friday. Uh, But we're going to end the episode now. And I just want to say thank you one more time here, Ian Townsend, for being on the show. And then for the audience, thank you for listening to us. And we hope that you have a great rest of your day today. And then we'll see you in two weeks on the Science Lab Radio Podcast. Thank you.
Thank you.